Well, most of us know uh, George Washington as the first president of the United States and the face of the $1 bill, right? This is what he's famous for. But, but of course, before George Washington became the president of the United States, he was the general of the army of the United States uh, that won victory over England in the American uh, War of Independence. Uh, and so that was 1783. The war was over. Uh, America was free from uh, the tyranny of England. But now what? Uh, remember, there was no government in place at the time, and so uh, America was just a, a, a struggling little nation at that point, and, and they didn't really know how to proceed. And so uh, the 13 colonies were struggling financially. They couldn't even pay uh, the, the promised pensions of their soldiers who fought in the war. And there were many people who thought, you know, if we don't get this thing unified under one central power, there's no way this new country of ours is going to survive. And and so uh, there were several uh, in, the, uh, in, in, uh, the, the, in power in those days who wanted to take George Washington and make him King George I of the United States of America. Isn't that amazing, right? To think they had just come out of King George III of Great Britain and now they're going to appoint uh, George Washington as George I. Well, George, of course, he flatly refused that uh, because they had just fought a war to be free uh, from this kind of, of dominance and, and authority, uh, and he refused uh, to allow America to fall into the same kind of system. So he refused power when he easily could have had it. And so, uh, for the next couple of years, the young nation struggled to establish the kind of government they were, that they were going to be until 1789, uh, the U.S. Constitution uh, was adopted, and then George Washington became President of the United States. Uh, he served for one term, uh, and he had to be talked into running for a second term. And after the second term, uh, such luminaries like Thomas Jefferson said, we need you to run for a third term. Uh, and he was wildly popular. He easily would have won re-election had he run again. And he said, no, I'm not going to run for a third term because I'm concerned that the office of president might evolve into something uh, like the tyrannical kings that we had in England. Uh, so it was not a good thing for one person to stay in office for too long. So he relinquished the power of the presidency. Now, isn't this something? Because it is exceedingly rare for one person to voluntarily refuse or relinquish power, right? I mean, the way of the world is to, to climb the ladder, to fight for power, and then when you get it, to, to fight off all comers who are looking to steal that power from you. Uh, who spends their life uh, acquiring power, being in a position where they can have uh, this power, and then when they're on the threshold of receiving it or having already received it, to voluntarily give it up? Well, Washington did it twice. Now, he did it when, in 1783 when they could have made him king, and he did it again after his second term of presidency when they were trying to make him president a third time. That's humility, brothers and sisters. That is humility. He lived by Jesus' words. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and be servant of all. And in a way, you and I owe a tremendous debt to George Washington even today because who knows what might have happened. Had he allowed himself to become king, had he taken that third term as president, uh, who knows what the office of president might have evolved into. Uh, so we might not enjoy the freedom and liberty we enjoy today if not for George Washington's selfless attitude and actions uh, 200 plus years ago. Now let's jump back to Jesus' time on earth. Putting others first and yourself last was just as unheard of in the first century as it was in Washington's time and as it is today, right? We, we don't generally put ourselves last. 
they lived during the days of the Roman emperors, right? And, and their, uh, the, the way they saw power and how it was, was attained was that power was attained by intrigue, by assassinations. And, and usually the person in power held it until somebody else uh, became strong enough and, and assassinated them, outed them from power, and then they become uh, the powerful person. But Jesus' teaching was that whoever wants to be greatest must become a servant of all. And that was not only different for the day, it was revolutionary. To hear this kind of talk was, was not something that was on anybody's mind in those days. And so uh, Jesus not only taught it, then he modeled it. So at the be beginning with, the, with this passage, now Jesus starts his march toward Jerusalem. That's what's happening. Uh, right now he's as far north as he's going to be, and he's uh, on a determined path for Jerusalem. Now, the people had already tried once to seize him and make him king. After he fed the 5,000, they said, let's seize him, make him king. He seems to have all the qualities that we would want in a king. But his mission was not to, to be king. His mission was to, to go to the cross and to die for our sins. And so uh, here is Jesus now beginning his march toward Jerusalem, uh, the first, the firstborn of God, uh, God in the flesh, uh, God become man, uh, begins his march toward Jerusalem, becoming the last of all, dying a criminal's death in our place. Now, last week, when we were talking about uh, how it's necessary uh, for, to cast out demons, to be in prayer and to have faith. And so we were talking last week about this, this vertical relationship that we have with God. We need to be prayerful. We need to be in faith. And now this week, as we move on to this passage that we're in, now we're talking about a vertical or a horizontal relationships, how disciples live in relationship to each other and the world horizontally as we put Jesus's teachings into practice. And as we look at these verses, it's kind of a hodgepodge, a piecemeal of various teachings of Jesus. But I think the thread that holds all of these together, this anchor that holds them together, is this Mark 9.35 9, uh, that Molly read and that I've referenced already. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. This is how disciples are supposed to live in horizontal relationship with another. Uh, and, and what Jesus is doing is redefining greatness by service, not, not defining greatness by the amount of people we can make serve us. That's not greatness. Uh, service is the measure of greatness. So beginning this passage, we're talking about Jesus' second passion prediction. That's how this thing kicks off in verses 30 to 32. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago, uh, I said that Mark's gospel follows a pattern uh, here. From the end of chapter 8 uh, to the end of chapter 10, uh, there are uh, three cycles of Jesus first explaining that he's going to be killed, and then the disciples not understanding it, and then Jesus having an opportunity then to, to teach on discipleship. So we saw that in chapter 8, uh, 31 through 38, and now we're beginning the second cycle as Jesus makes his second passion prediction here in verses 30 to 32, and we see in, this, uh, in these couple verses here that the disciples don't understand it, and later Jesus will teach on discipleship. So, 
they left from there, is what uh, Mark says. They left from uh, all the way up in Mount Hermon. You can see that's the highest blue circle uh, on your left side there. That's what it looks like on a map. But I wanted to show it to you what it looks like topographically as well. So you don't have this image in your mind that Jerusalem, uh, that Israel is a flat place, uh, far from it. It's mountainous, really difficult to, to get around uh, Mount Hermon. And so uh, Jesus was on his way now from Mount Hermon all the way up north, heading toward Jerusalem. And he obviously knew what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, but as a true servant, he didn't run from his mission. He marched toward his mission, uh, the cross that waited him uh, in Jerusalem. And so uh, he passed through Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. That's the, the middle circle that I have drawn there. Uh, it's about 20 miles from Mount Hermon. So we know that Jesus spent a lot of his time in Galilee, so he was obviously well known there because of the miracles and the teachings that he had done there. Uh, but this was not a time for Jesus to visit with old friends and reminisce about old times. Uh, this was a time for Jesus to have intense, private teaching with his disciples. And so he didn't want anyone to know he was there. Just him and his disciples, no interruptions, just training. And so this passage begins with this second prediction of Jesus' death. Uh, this verb that you see there uh, in verse 31, he was teaching, is in what they call in Greek the imperfect tense, which means uh, that he was teaching them continually, uh, past tense, but he was teaching them repeatedly uh, that he was going to go to the cross and die, which means that the disciples uh, are probably even more dense than we even perceive them to be because he's taught them this more than once and they still don't get it. Now in Jerusalem, Jesus says he's going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Some of your translations may say he will be handed over into the hands of evil men. Uh, that Greek word there is paradidomai, paradidomai. It means to be betrayed or to be handed over. So who is this exactly who is going to hand Jesus over to, into the hands of men? Well, Jesus betra or Judas betrayed Jesus, right? So that's one way he was paradidomide, handed over. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And the Jews handed Jesus over to the Romans, paradidomide, right? That happened as well. But behind all of that, behind all of that is God, right? God's sovereign hand. God sovereignly delivers Jesus over to wicked men for him to fulfill the purpose for which he came. And Jesus voluntarily submitted to the Father's plan that he go to the cross, that he be handed over to wicked men so that they would crucify him so that Jesus could pay the price of our sin. Well, that's really uh, an unbelievable thing to consider. And not surprisingly, the disciples don't understand, right? And so uh, this, this is Jesus' second prediction of death, as I, as I mentioned. So remember back in 831, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand. Uh, Jesus uh, had to take Peter aside and rebuke Peter because Peter rebuked Jesus for this crazy talk that he should go to the cross. So in the middle of that, you know, there was plenty of time for the disciples to think about, you know, the questions that they might have had of Jesus. And now this second passion prediction would have been the perfect time for them to ask these questions that had been ruminating uh, in the back of their minds. But Mark says here again, they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask. And so they don't ask. And so Jesus allows them to remain in their silence, just stewing in their confusion. And so they continue on to Capernaum. And here is where Jesus taught them that disciples of Jesus mirror his humility. Verses 33 to 37. They came to Capernaum. 
And when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So uh, here are the disciples on their way to Capernaum with Jesus. Now, Capernaum is uh, Jesus' adopted hometown. That's the gate of Capernaum. You can see it if you go there today. Uh, And that's where he made his hometown after they rejected him in his actual hometown of of Nazareth. And so this is, as I said, 20 miles from uh, Mount Hermon. It's a full day's journey, perhaps even two, depending on how fast they wanted to go. And so uh, they go to the house, Mark calls it, which most likely means Peter's house uh, because they had met there before. And so this is what Peter's house looked like. They excavated this and found it uh, in Capernaum. This is what it looked like uh, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, Since then, they have built this church over the top of it. It's an octagonal structure, uh, but it's built raised on those stilts so you can see underneath uh, the church, you can still see the excavated uh, ruins of Peter's house there. So Jesus and his disciples met there more than once. That's why Mark calls it the house, because his readers would have been familiar with that house. And so the disciples are they're having this discussion on the way, uh, but Jesus waited until they got to Peter's house before they questioned him about it. And I'm fascinated by the arguments that each one might make as to why they were the greatest, right? What would Peter say about why he's the greatest? Like, I am the greatest at putting my foot in my mouth. I'm always the first one to speak and I'm always wrong. I'm the best at that, right? That's what Peter might say. Or what would the nine disciples at the foot of the mountain say? Uh, We are the best at not being able to cast out demons. None of us could cast it out, but I was the best at not being able to cast it out, right? What would they say? How would they possibly argue for themselves as the greatest of all of these? The fact is that none of them were great, but this is a problem with humanity in general, right? We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are full of pride and we build ourselves up and make more of ourselves, make more of ourselves than we truly are. So I'm sure they they gulped uh, deeply and hard when they realized that Jesus knew what they had been talking about uh, on the way. And Jesus asked to see if anybody would be humble enough uh, to admit it. So can you imagine this conversation? Jesus has just said a second time, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I will be killed. And after I am killed, I will rise again three days later. Now, you know, I would hope that I would not start arguing over who, if I, that I was the greatest, but I probably would have, right? Just being just like they are and full of pride myself. But there are so many questions you could ask. What does it mean to rise from the dead? Who's going to kill you? How is this going to happen? What does rising from the dead mean? And and what's it going to look like after you do? Uh, There were tons of things that they could have asked, but this is what they were talking about because they were full of pride. And so they're following Jesus to gain the greatest glory for themselves. And in a way, you know, it's, it's hard to blame them because they, they had no power. They, they didn't know what it looked like to live with any kind of power because they were under Roman rule. And they were taught and their culture taught them that the most powerful people were the ones who were the greatest. And so Jesus now turns that idea on its head, uh, beginning in verse 35 with this teaching about how 
Uh, one must be, if one wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. And so verse 35 kind of begins a, a collection of different teachings uh, that, that flip their thinking on its ears. Uh, and so Jesus says, uh, you must be last of all. You must be servant of all. So to be last of all means there is nobody behind you, right? You are last of all. So that's it, last on the list. To be servant of all means there's nobody who you are not going to serve. None are excluded. And so now Jesus illustrates this teaching. Uh, he, he, He takes a child. It might have been one of Peter's children, right? Who else would have been in Peter's house except for Peter's children? Probably one of his own children. Why a child? Well, a child is vulnerable, right? It needs protection. A child is innocent, independent, uh, but most importantly, held in the lowest position in society and the lowest position in the household. And so Jesus takes this lowly child, wraps his arms around this child, which demonstrates his love and safety and protection. And this child doesn't resist Jesus. He wants to come to Jesus. And Jesus teaches, verse 37, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And so this is, this is Christian hospitality. This is how we're supposed to treat each other. Uh, the word for receives means to welcome as a guest, to welcome uh, in, the, in the sense of uh, to serve the person that you're welcoming. And so the child uh, is symbolic of all Christians. We're to serve each other. We're to serve each other and not try to be greater than each other. And the word whoever in verse 37 means that anybody can do this. Whoever does this. So anyone can do this, but sadly, not everyone will. And there are lots of reasons why we don't want to serve each other. And the number one reason, of course, is pride. Right? We think we're better than that person, and so we shouldn't be serving them. They should be serving us. That's how we feel in our prideful hearts. Uh, or we believe that the service that is required is below our station in life, and we're not going to stoop down to do that kind of service when we're worthy of this kind of service. And so pride can cause us to put ourselves first and to put others last. And so can our desire for comfort. We know we should serve, but we just don't feel like it at this particular time. We're tired. We're lazy. Uh, We're not willing to serve others. We're perfectly willing to let them serve us, but we're not willing to serve them. And so Jesus taught us in this passage that we are not great. We are not worthy of being served. In fact, the only thing we're worthy of because of our sin is death. And so the path to greatness in God's eyes are through service. Uh, And so to receive an insignificant child is to receive Jesus. And to receive Jesus is to receive God. And that ought to be enough motivation for us, brothers and sisters, to serve others. Because if we receive and serve others, we are serving Jesus and therefore serving God. And next comes Jesus' teaching on who should be received into the faith community. Verses 38 to 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I will say to you, he will not lose his reward." So the principle Jesus is teaching about here is inclusivity in the church, in the kingdom of God, not exclusivity from the church, from the kingdom of God. But again, there's an issue of pride here. John is one of the the 12 insiders, this band of brothers who Jesus has chosen. 
And he probably didn't want anyone on the outside to be crashing their party, right, and upstaging them, taking any power away from them. And so uh, it made them look bad that the, that the nine down at the bottom of the hill couldn't cast out demons while this man was going about casting out demons in Jesus' name. So John's first mistake is that he is trying to keep people out of the kingdom when Jesus is trying to bring people into the kingdom. And John's second mistake is to elevate himself by saying the man wasn't following us. Now, no one was following John or the other apostles, right? They were all following Jesus, and John and the others just happened to be following Jesus too. So John and the others thought they were big shots because they were part of Jesus' entourage, part of his circle of 12. Uh, and the, he, John, and the others wanted to keep uh, anyone on the outside out. Now, contrast with that, Jesus wanted to allow the man and all who believe into the community of faith. Jesus hadn't specifically called this man as one of the 12, but that doesn't mean he can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so he had Jesus' authority to cast out demons because he was a believer and he prayed and he had faith, just like Jesus told the disciples at the bottom of the mountain that they needed to cast out that demon. And casting out demons is working against Satan, which means that he is for Jesus. He's advancing Jesus' kingdom and beating back Satan's kingdom. So this is an insider who would not speak evil of Jesus later. Uh, this man was an enemy and not an ally. I'm sorry, he was an ally and not an enemy. Yeah, let me get that one right. Uh, so we in the church, of course, have a lot to learn from this, don't we? We have a lot to learn from this because uh, sometimes we treat outsiders to our little community here as enemies of the church just because they have differences of opinion about non-salvation issues, right? And, and we as Christians find millions of ways to divide. That's why there are thousands of denominations of Christianity, right? Uh, and what we do is we focus on our differences instead of focusing on the thing that makes us united, right? Our faith that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and by faith in him, we will go to heaven. So uh, what we ought to be doing is focusing on our shared belief that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and that's what unites us rather than the fact that we happen to differ on non-salvation issues like worship styles or style of dress or style of music or, or dress or whatever it is. Uh, all these things divide, and what we need to focus on is the things that unite us. And now Jesus finishes this little section just by teaching about rewards. You know, the disciples were focused on earthly rewards. You know, what are we going to get when Jesus assumes his throne? And so they're expecting uh, a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, and they wanted to be with a king who could reward them materially for their loyalty. Uh, but Jesus was teaching about eternal rewards, non-material rewards, spiritual rewards. He says, truly, the word is amen in Greek, amen, which is a solemn, unbreakable truth that followers of Christ who serve others, uh, other believers in Jesus's name, uh, have a reward that they cannot lose. Now, Jesus doesn't name the reward specifically here, but we see that God will reward even the smallest of service, uh, even a cup of water. Now, let's just be sure we understand this is not salvation by works, right? That is not what Jesus is talking about here. We get to heaven because we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and we've put our faith in him. But the rewards that Jesus promised here are for, for uh, service done for Jesus after we become Christians, after we have received the gospel out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. So God won't forget even the smallest act of service. And then next, Jesus issued warnings for his disciples. Warnings for his disciples. 
You know, Jesus had just, or I'm sorry, John had just confessed to telling an outsider to stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus, they're still in the room, right? Jesus still has his arms wrapped around this young child. And this was a good time to warn the disciples about uh, hindering others' walk uh, with people, uh, with other people. And so what we see here in these verses from 42 uh, to, 40, or to 50 is uh, about warnings about causing others to sin, first of all, and then warnings about your own sin, being careful of your own sin, and then also teaching that God is going to evaluate and judge everyone on Judgment Day. So first, uh, warnings for the disciples about uh, causing others to sin. That's verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who, uh, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So this word for stumble means to cause to fall, uh, to fall in their faith. And so Jesus is holding this child and he's using this child literally. Uh, we, should, we should not lead children into sin. We should train them up in discipleship. But Jesus was also using this child kind of as a metaphor for, for new believers, uh, people who might not very, be very mature in the faith, or for any believer that we might have any kind of influence over. And so verse 42 says, whoever causes. So you know, it's possible for believers to cause other believers to fall into sin if we're not careful uh, by what we teach, by the things uh, we do, by the things we model. So we have to be very careful. A humble servant of Jesus has to be cautious not to cause a child or someone new to the faith or anyone in the faith to stumble. Instead, we need to protect uh, disciples, uh, do all we can to help them uh, to, uh, to, to stay away from trouble, to keep them from stumbling, certainly not lead them into sin. And so a millstone uh, was the large stone used to, to grind grain or olives in an olive press. And so as you can see, that millstone is very big and heavy. It's so heavy that you need a donkey to, to haul that thing around, walking in a circle all day, grinding olives. That's what, that's what he does. And the millstone does the grinding. So imagine this thing tied around your neck and you tossed over the boat, right? Uh, you're going to sink to the bottom quite quickly. And so Jesus said, it's better uh, for you to die a horrible death by drowning than uh, to be a subject to the consequences uh, of leading one of these little ones into sin. So intentionally leading somebody into sin is Satan's work, right? That's the, that's the work of unbelievers, and unbelievers, we know, will suffer the reward of their unbelief, which is eternity in hell. So that's causing others to sin, now guarding against our own sin. Uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, Jesus taught this also in the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember that from the Sermon on the Mount. And we see here that his warning is, is very personal. If your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to stumble, 
well, then you have to take measures. And so our sin is a serious offense against God, and we have to do all we can to avoid it. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He doesn't want us to chop off body parts. He's teaching that we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to master sin, to conquer it and cut it out of our lives. And so we know that the penalty for failing to do that means you're an unbeliever, and, and the, the destination of an unbeliever is hell. Now, you know that there is a current trend in Christianity to teach against hell, right? To, to, to reject the idea of hell. And many uh, who, uh, who profess Christianity say that God is too loving to send people to hell. But that ignores the consistent teaching of the New Testament, uh, of the Bible, and Jesus, right? Uh, God is loving, but he's also just and holy and righteous, and he must punish sin. And because he loves us, he punished Jesus in our place so that we would not have to be punished because Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. Now, to receive the benefits of Jesus' atoning death, we have to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And if we do, we have eternal life in heaven with him. But if we don't, then we have eternal life apart from him in hell. So Jesus' point is, we all have eternal life. The question is, where are we going to spend it? Where are we going to spend it? Life goes on. The only question is where. And Jesus frequently warned about hell because it's a real place and he doesn't want us to go there. Uh, and we don't want to go there, which is why Jesus taught so much about hell. The word for hell that Jesus used is the word Gehenna, uh, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, which I don't think you can see it very well on that map, but the Valley of Hinnom is this entire area to the west and to the south of Jerusalem here. And what's significant about that valley is that that is where parents used to sacrifice their children to the god Moloch back in the days of wicked king Ahaz and wicked king Manasseh. And by the first century, the Valley of Hinnom was used as a garbage heap. They would take their garbage there and they would set it on fire. And that fire never went out because people were continually bringing their fire, or garbage there uh, to be burned. And so that's why uh, Jesus uses this Gehenna as a metaphor for hell, a place where the worm does not die and the fire never goes out. The worm represents internal torment and the fire represents external torment. And so Jesus is talking about unending conscious punishment. Uh, that's what those who refuse to repent and believe are going to receive. And Jesus talked about that, God's judgment, in verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So verse 49 is a little difficult to understand. Uh, salted with fire probably means that God will judge everyone with fire. Now, fire serves a couple of purposes, right? We know that fire destroys on the one hand, but it also purifies on the other hand. So the fire will destroy unbelievers by sending them to hell, but the fire will purify believers as they enter into heaven. In verse 50, the metaphor is of salt as a preservative. And so salt in ourselves means we will preserve ourselves, we will preserve others by our humble attitude of service. And Jesus' statement to be at peace with one another brings us back full circle in the passage, doesn't it? Because in the beginning of the passage, they are arguing with each other over who is going to be greatest. And Jesus says, be at peace with each other. Don't fight about who is the greatest. Just serve one another. Stop arguing about who is greatest. Be great by serving each other and being at peace with each other. 
So a whole conglomeration of, of various teachings uh, uh, which generally support the principle of anybody who wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So let's just apply it a couple ways how we can do those things. To be first, we have, shall be last of all and servant of all. And the first thing is to be humble. You know, we're never going to serve unless we allow the Holy Spirit to chisel away at our pride. George Washington voluntarily surrendered power as an act of service because he knew it was for the greater good of the nation. He put future Americans first. Now, Jesus went way beyond what any human being could ever do, right? He is God, and he becomes flesh. We read about this in Philippians 2. The humility of Jesus as he comes down, takes on flesh, becomes a man, and dies for our sins. It's the greatest example of service ever displayed. And so for us, just to recognize that there is nothing in us that is worthy of salvation, that should help us become more humble. And as we start thinking, it's when we start thinking that we are worthy well, that's when pride gets over, t- takes over, and we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. So we need this vertical humility with God. We also need this horizontal humility with others. So, so how do we do that? Well, I mean, just a couple of suggestions. Uh, if you're being recognized for something, you know, be quick to recognize those who helped get you there, you know? Don't hog the glory for yourself. Recognize the other people who helped you along the way or to achieve this honor that you're receiving. Uh, If someone else has success, don't resent it. Don't be jealous of it. Celebrate their success, right? It's wonderful when people have success. Uh, So celebrate it with them. Uh, Be better about forgiveness, right? Don't hold grudges. Be quick to reconcile uh, where we can reconcile. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, be generous with your time and your money. Uh, these are all little ways that we can serve, just a few things that we can do to please God uh, when we live with humility. And so be humble, and secondly, serve others. Uh, serving others is one of the greatest ways to show our humility. Uh, and service as Jesus taught it isn't a one-time act. A service as Jesus taught it is, is a lifestyle. It's an attitude, it's a way of life. And so the opportunities to serve are endless if we have our eyes open and looking for them. We can't do everything, right? But but we can all do something. And so look for needs. Be willing to sacrifice comfort, money, and time for the sake of others. God rewards even the smallest act of service in his name. And we don't do it for the reward. We do it because Jesus loved us and served us and saved us. And so when we serve others, we are thanking Jesus for what he did for us, to show his love for us uh, to a desperate world that needs to be taught the gospel, but also needs to see it modeled. And that's what you and I can do to a desperately needy world. Let's pray. Lord God, help our hearts. Uh, It is difficult to to have servants' hearts, Lord. Uh, We We typically are into our own comfort, and we are prideful people, Lord, and it's not in us to think service first. And so, Lord, we pray that you will give us an an attitude like Jesus, uh, the humility that Jesus had, so that we will think of others before ourselves, that we will uh, serve like Jesus served, Lord. And, and, uh, Lord, if if by doing that we spread the gospel, well, that is what we're here for, Lord, and we ask that you give us the, the willingness and the ability to do it. We pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.